I'm always tickled by, and I'm going to use a very deliberate phrase here, and I need you to remember this phrase. I'm always tickled by the joyful absurdity. I just kind of hold on to that phrase, joyful absurdity. I'm always, I'm always lo- I love, I'm tickled by the joyful absurdity of a young child's mind when they're trying to connect up a world full of experiences that they haven't experienced, and they're trying to boil it down to their incredibly limited experiences, and the connections they make are just priceless. They're, they're just... You know, how only, only a little kid could make those kind of connections. And, you, and, and years later, you're just like, why did I write all those down? Why didn't I write all those down? Um, and the crazy part about it is sometimes the, asserted, the absurdity isn't absurd after all. I would come home from work a lot of times, um, and Amanda would say something to me. You know, she'd just start gibbering, and, and she likes to talk. And about there's a dog and a blanket and, and mom was involved and there was this dad. And, and I'm like, I'm looking at Diane going, <laughs> and Diane's like, well, Jerry, today we went to the park. We had a picnic. We had a blanket. A dog walked by with a man. And Amanda said, why isn't daddy here? So what Amanda's trying to tell you in all her gibberish is she missed you. Right? That, that was it. She just missed you. And I was like, how did you get all that from that? So we just have to hang around her. And, and you begin to, you know, you understand her language and the things that she's referring to during the day. So sometimes it's just that kind of thing. But again, more often than not, if you lean in and really learn to listen closely to young children, um, if you can handle it, if your skin is really, really thick, right? Because they can be and they can, they can issue incredible truths brutal, brutal honesty, right? In incredibly inopportune times, very public moments. It's like, that's correct, but not right now. <laughs> Dinner table's not the place for that, um, right? If you listen really closely from the mouth of babes, right? You understand that phrase, right? They just, they issue truths. Painful sometimes, but, but they're always priceless. So I, just very quickly, Santa's top 10 list here, and yes, I know we're in church. Just let me play with this for a minute, Okay. Santa's top 10 request list. Number 10, dear Santa, thank you for my baby brother you left us last Christmas. I hope you do better this year. (laughs) Dear Santa, even if you don't leave me anything, I'll still love you, but not much. Kids are just brutally honest. Again, if you listen and read between the lines, they're saying a lot, right? They're saying a lot. Dear Santa, my name is Debbie. I'm six. I've been a really good girl when I sleep. (laughs) Dear Santa, can you bring me a doll that can cry and wet and sleep and help me clean my room? Very pragmatic young lady there. Dear Santa, I say my prayers every night, always help my mother, and I didn't sock my brother today. Now, if he's lying, I bet you he's lying, so his whole thing went out the window right there. Dear Santa, I like boxing gloves for Christmas. I want to surprise my friend. Now, now I like this prayer. It made the, the, the five, like it didn't make the top half, but it's the beginning of the, 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 the when they get really, really good. I mean, because so far they've been somewhat self-centered. You've noticed that, right? They've been kind of just kids. Kids are in, they're just that way. Sometimes they're so given and sometimes they're so selfish. It's like, ah. But we're getting a glimmer of the true Christmas spirit with this one, right? Okay. Dear Santa, please save all your presents for poor kids. After the poor kids, I come next. And now we're back. <laughs> Number three, dear Santa, my doll needs a boyfriend, and so does my big sister. Now, that's a big heart, right? That, that is a heart. That you, you... Number two, dear Santa, all your presents are just for good boys and girls. That's not fair. <laughs> now, you know, and I, and I looked at this one, and it makes me just a little bit nervous because sometimes I feel like this is the Jesus that we're presenting to our kids. 
right? If you're good, he'll love you. If you're not, mm, man, we, we can't, we can't ever let that idea slip from our lips. And number one, my daddy needs a new job for Christmas. The old job makes him sad. You get the heart of these kids. They, they, you don't think they're gathering and making sense of the information of the world and, and you're going about your business and your household, but they're, they're, they're soaking it in. They're soaking it in. They're hearing everything you say and they're, they're trying to make sense of it. And sometimes they fit together really oddly, but sometimes hand in glove, man, they, they nail it. They just nail it. And we're like, oh. My guess is if we were to peel back the layers on this Christmas wish and probably most of the others, I mean, if we were to dig deep enough, we'd find the heart of most Christmas wishes and prayers, and really wishes and prayers year-round, not, not just at Christmas, and just somebody, please make things better. Little kid, it tends to be Santa Claus. As we grow up, we turn to God. Please just make things better. That's kind of at the heart of, I think, every, every prayer that we pray. Can you make things better? And for some folks, this just includes them. I'll make things better for me. And strangely enough, and it's just the way God made this world, they seldom find peace when they're searching for just themselves. It's just paradox. I don't understand. It's just the way it works, right? You, you search for that, and, and you don't come up with that. In the long run, things don't get better. But for other people, please make things better. This, this Christmas wish, this prayer... It includes not just themselves. It might not even include themselves. It'll include just their, their big sister, right? Big sister needs a boyfriend. Please bring her a boyfriend. <laughs> Wrap them up, whatever you do. Friends and family and neighbors, and the circle gets wider and wider the more and more love somebody has in, in their heart, right? That, that they want things to get better for somebody else. And you see that, and you just think, oh, that's that's that's. That's wonderful. Even unwanted neighbors, and again, that, that can be taken two ways, not praying that they would go away, but that you would learn to love them, right? Be careful with your prayers. Um, but, but there's one Christmas wish I didn't include, but I think if you listen closely to kids, to radio, to TV, um, you're going to hear this, this wish. In one version or another, it's going to come up. Um, peace on earth. And sadly, when we, when we hear somebody utter this phrase, um, we chuckle. We, we will say something like, well, well, bless his little heart. Bless, bless their little heart, which is code for, right, one day you'll grow up and realize just how absurd praying for peace on earth is, just, just how silly that is. But I want to tell you something that's truly absurd the untold number of governments and kingdoms and dynasties that have come and gone built on this promise, right? They promise people, we will bring you peace. And from the beginning of time, governments and kingdoms and dynasties, they've made this promise and they've come up woefully short, right? Maybe, maybe if you were the right ethnic group, maybe if you were the right gender, the right color, the right whatever, you enjoyed the benefits of the dynasty, the kingdom, the benefit. But more than likely, the truth, closer to the truth, um, there were a lot of people who peace was built on their backs. Um, in fact, 
uh, the kind of kingdom that God's kingdom burst into, right? That God's kingdom came to supplant. I'm going to use that word very carefully, and I want you to remember that word. That God's kingdom is going to supplant. It's called the, the, the Pax Romana, right? This, this, was, this was a government, this was a kingdom of the world that promised its people peace. And in fact, it was called Pax Romana, which was the, the Roman peace, the peace of Rome. And the idea was that their government had created a situation in the Mediterranean world where there was a lack, largely a lack of war, right? So the people could travel without fear of being accosted, without fear of being recruited into a local army, into a local conflict. And there, but as we look at it, we understand something. The peace of Rome was built on cruel suppression, right? It was built, it was built on brute force, intimidation. It was built on slavery, like so many of the world kingdoms before and after it, the Chinese empires, the totalitarian empires of the 20th century, the, the Soviet empire, all were of providing peace if you were the right ethnicity, color, gender, group. If you were the wrong group, though, right? Again, more often than not, not always, but the peace that was provided for certain groups of people it was built off, off your you, you paid for it. You provided it, but you didn't get it. That's just the way the kingdoms of this world work. The Pax Romana was simply the next kingdom to overtly topple the previous kingdom, only to build an identical one on top using the exact same tactics of brute force, coercion, and violence. Right? Overtly, meaning they're just kind of destroying what's visible, Right? What's easy to get at, knocking it all over, never, never attacking the roots, the foundation of these governments, but just knocking over the buildings, whatever they built, and then let's build our buildings on top of the same exact foundation, the exact same foundation, just an incredibly different building up on top, right? So I want you to remember, here's what the foundation looked like at Jesus' baptism, right? This was in Luke 3, chapter 1. The 15th year, we read this a couple weeks ago, Pontius Pilate and Herod and Philip and all these, these horrible, horrible people. This was a kingdom of violence, backstabbing, murder, treachery, intrigue, and debauchery, right? This was the kingdom of this world in which Jesus' kingdom is breaking into. Right? Always, and again, this kingdom, this kingdom right here, they were always promising both their Roman overlords and the Jewish people, we'll give you peace, we promise, we promise will give you peace, but it'll cost you. And you might not get the peace. It might get to your neighbor, but, you, right? It's not for everybody. Now, here's where the Jewish people were sitting at the time that Jesus started his ministry. Let's back up 30 years, right? Back up 30 years, and this is, this is the cesspool from which that kingdom was birthed, right? King Herod, right? He wasn't a Jewish guy. He was just the son of a really smart general, and he ends up with more power than the Hasmonean dynasty, which were the Maccabee family, right? And he ends up with all this power, and he says, uh, you know, I, I'm going to play the game. I'm going to play the political game, so I'm going to marry into that family so that everyone, so I can get some Jewish blood into my family. And it was just this, just, just that's the way this, this kingdom operated. This is the kingdom into which the Prince of Peace is born, Right? Into this type of kingdom, a kingdom of flesh, a kingdom built on evil, enters the Prince of Peace. Now, it's been said, 
And I noticed this in a song. I loved it. It's been said that if mothers wrote more Christmas songs, we'd probably have fewer songs about silent light nights and babies that don't cry. And, and, and everyone, everyone in this room understands that. that, that that's obvious. And, and what very few people realize is that we do have a song written by a young mother. In fact, by the mother of Jesus. And the crazy thing about this song, there's, there's no silent, right? There's no the babies not crying. There's nothing, nothing like that. In, in, in fact, it's... Um, it's been called one of the most, uh, let's see what the phrase, one of the most muscular, that was the word, one of the most muscular pieces of ancient literature ever written. Muscular. Now, I want you to keep that in the back of your mind because these muscular words are coming out of this 14, 15, 16-year-old virgin girl, right? Just kind of juxtaposition, these, these incredibly muscular words coming out of this, this, this little girl, Right? Again, we're going to look at that. We're going to look at this song in just a little bit. Um, but it's a powerfully subversive song because it speaks of a mighty God, the mighty power of God that's going to break into this world and completely change it. And it's going to change it in completely unexpected ways, completely unexpected ways. And here's what I mean by subversive, right? It's going to change the world by subversive ways. Subversive means this. Um, intending to subvert or overthrow or destroy or undermine and establish your existing system, especially a legally constituted government or set of beliefs. Right? Now, the key about the word subversion, there's another word we could have used there, overt. Right? We could have overtly overthrown and destroyed something, but subversion is, is getting underneath it, getting at the roots of not destroying the visible symbols and the visible buildings, but destroying the systems that built those buildings, that built those symbols, right? destroying the root that's subversion. That, that, that's supplanting something. Most of the nations of this world, they just walk in. They don't, they don't mess with the foundation because they know they need that foundation. They operate under that foundation. So don't destroy the foundation. Build on it. Build on that foundation of cruel suppression and fear and violence. But Christ came to this world to eat subversion, right? Because he knew if you tackle the visible... Let me give you a couple examples, right? Two ways to kill a weed. You can overtly kill it. Weed's gone. <laughs> Boom. That's kind of the way the world's, the kingdoms of this world operate, right? Stop talking. <laughs> Boom, you're done. But you all know, you've all weeded a yard. What happens about a week from now? Because you didn't get the root, did you? That weed's coming back. You can fire that bugger up every day and that weed's going to keep coming back because you're only overtly, you're only, you're only attacking the visible structures and the visible symbol of what's down below that, that root, the root. Got to get to the root, right? Another example, you can tell somebody how horrible they are. They can overtly, you can overtly tell somebody you're horrible. They're probably not going to take that well, right? Or you can subvert, right? You can sneak it in a little bit. I know a cartoonist, his name's Charles Schultz, wrote one of the most famous Christmas stories ever. And he says that every one of his comic books was a subversion, right? He would sneak in the gospel. People wouldn't even notice, but they would read the comic strip and realize, wow, it would mirror them. They was, oh man, I'm a bad person. I'm like this character in the comic book. And, and he subvert, subversion, right? Sneak it in there. Love it, love it. And I want to give you an example from God's word. A subversive message delivered in a subversive manner by subversive people. But first of all, I want to start with a subversive manner in which the Prince of Peace appears. This is Luke chapter 1, verse 5. It says, in the time of King Herod, now this is 
at the birth of Jesus. So this is Herod the Great, right? The big guy that built the second temple, that married Miriam, and then all his sons are going to be on the throne when Jesus is 30 years old. So kind of separate the Herods, right? At the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife Elizabeth was also a descendant of Aaron, right? So we have a Levite priest, and we have the descendant, a direct descendant of Aaron, right? The first priest of Israel. Sounds like a perfect family through which to bring and announce glad tidings or good news, right? This would be the family. Gets better. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. But they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive, and they were both very old. So we have some really, really great people experiencing really, really hard times in need of some really, really some good news. Continue, verses 8 and 9. Once when Zechariah's division was on duty, he was serving as priest before God. He was chosen by lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to go into the temple of the Lord and burn increase. Very quickly, if you were a mayor, a male, not a mayor, that'd be a horse. Um, if you were a male um, and you were Jewish and you were of the tribe of Levi, you're a priest for life. You're born a priest, you die a priest. So you start adding it up, and you start the years go by, and you, and you end up with just a whole lot of priests, and, and you don't need that many priests to do the work in the temple, right? So you just got this crazy, crazy number. So what they did is they divided up all these Levites, all these guys that are of the tribe of Levi, and they divided them up into 24 sections or teams. And each team or section would come to the temple twice a year, kind of separated by about six months, whatever, and they would serve for one week. Now... They still had boatloads and boatloads of Levites, right? So what would happen is your section, maybe Zechariah's the division of Abijah. That was one of the 24 family or divisions of the priests. Um, and, and yet there were too many even in that clan. So what they would do is they would draw lots. So it got to the point where there were so many that you could be born a priest, born and die a priest, but you never got to serve in the temple like having your lot drawn as a priest, as a Levite, is like winning the lottery, right? This is, this is Zachariah's like, oh, like his biggest day in his life. He gets to go. He, his name got drawn. So that, that's all that, what's going on and all, all there. Okay, continuing in verse 10. And when the time of the burning of the incense came, all the ascended worshipers were, were praying outside, waiting for him because he would go into the inner sanction there, do the sacrifice where only the priests were allowed to be, and then he would light incense, right, as a, a, a sweet aroma rising up to the Lord, right? You got, you got that idea. Barbecue and incense. Oh, man, Right? So they're waiting for Zechariah to emerge. But unbeknownst to those waiting outside, something extraordinary is happening inside. Listen to this. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. So that places him inside where nobody else is. Right? Not even the males. You've got the court of women, you've got the men, and then the, the, the priests. Right? You're, you're getting closer and closer to the inner sanctum. Right? When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and was gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayers have been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you are to call him John. It just struck me. Why not Zechariah, Jeremiah? Right? If I were to have a boy, Diane cracks up. If we were to have a boy, I was going to call him. My name is Jerry. Jeremiah or Zebulon or, or some big old strong Old Testament name like I got Jerry, yeah. John the Baptist got John. I'm thinking of John. 
Anyway, anyway, okay. He will be a joy and a delight to you, and many, joy, and many will rejoice because of his birth, because he will be great in the sight of the Lord. And Zechariah asked the angel, how can, this, how can you be sure of this? Now, I want you to catch the tone. How can you be sure of this? Right? He's screaming, I, you don't know what you're talking about. In fact, I'm an old man, and my wife is well along in years. How? You are crazy. This is impossible. Literally, he's saying to the angel, this is impossible. Don't do that. If an angel appears at your bed, right, don't argue with him. I'm just, I'm just saying, I'm just pulling lessons out of here. That's just crazy, right? So he literally asked the angel, are you sure that's literally impossible? The angel said, no, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I have, sent, I have been sent to speak to you and tell you the good news, and now you will be silent and not be able to speak until the day this happens because you did not believe my words. Don't mess with Gabriel, <laughs> which will come true at their appointed time. Now, meanwhile, the people who are waiting for Zechariah, and they're wondering why he's staying in there so long, right? Did he die? Because that can happen, right? Then somebody's got to go in and get him, and it's just a horrible situation. Um, chapter, verse 22, when he came out, he could not speak to them. Right? He'd been struck dumb. They realized he had seen a vision in the temple, for he kept making signs to them, but remained unable to speak. So, okay, so here's the situation. Follow me real closely here. From the mouth of a righteous male Jew, <clears throat> right, the type of person that we would expect to hear such good news about the Savior of the world coming out of the Jewish people, we get silence from God. Silence from a voice that should have been trusted with this message. But from that voice, we get silence. From the Temple Mount, the location of the Shekinah, the glory of God, right? The manner or circumstances around which one would expect to hear such good news. From the Temple Mount, we get what? We get silence from God. And from the power central, right, the Herodian dynasty, the Roman Empire, obviously, we get silence from God. Instead, instead, God decided to announce his subversive message in a much more subversive manner by way of far more subversive people, people that he could get his message in and nobody would have their defenses up and block, right? Here comes the man with a sword, get, you know, defenses, but here comes a young woman your defenses go down. How, how dangerous can she be? In Luke chapter 1, this is what God decides instead. Instead of a Jewish male from the temple, we're going to get a, a young female in a backwater town, in a backwater region of Galilee. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth a town in Galilee to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David, and the virgin's main name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The, God, the Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. Now, now, now we read that, but in first century Holy Land, 
This was subversive. This would get you killed. This is announcing a king that will supplant all other kings and who will never be supplanted again. This is, this is subversive. This is, this is revolutionary talk. From a backwater town of Galilee, a, a king. And he's not a part of the Roman Empire. He's not a part of the religious empire. He's not a part of the kingdoms of this world. He's totally different. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? Now, you notice the difference between what Zachariah said and what Mary said. Zachariah said, how can this work? It's impossible. But Mary said, how will it work? Right? I, I know it's going to work, but can you explain to me? Because I've, I've had family life in fifth grade, and I know. Right? T- tell me how this is going to work. I mean, because I'm rather fascinated. There's no doubt. As, as you can see in her poem that she, she I'm going to show you in just a minute. No doubt in her mind. Just, she's very, very curious. How is this going to work? Because it doesn't make a lot of sense. Zachariah is like, this is impossible. You, you can't do this. This is, this is impossible. And then after explaining how it will come about, the angel adds a loving touch of assurance. Verses 36 through 7. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she who is said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month, and no word from God will, for no word from God will ever fail. Just like that evergreen, right? It just is goes on and on and on, never, never fails. So Mary hustles off to visit her relative Elizabeth, mother-to-be of John the Baptist. We pick up in verse 41. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greetings, the, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and in a loud voice she proclaimed, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you will bear. But, but she's... This, this should have been happening with, with the men. This should have been happening at the Temple Mount why is in my house, we don't even know the name of the village that will never, forever be unnamed. That's not the seat of power. So even Elizabeth's like, this is weird. This is just not the way the world operates. God is doing something. And here's the crazy part. Luke makes a big deal about this. You notice who the voices are. They're the voices of women. He's signaling to the world, to his readers, that this Jesus is going to be radically different. He's not going to be the same as everything else. He's going to be radically, radically different. Why am I so favored? The mother of my Lord should come to me. And as soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Blessed is she who has believed that the Lord would fulfill his promises to her. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled then the angel left her. And so an unexpected, quiet, subversive manner, right? An unnamed Judean village, far from the seats of political or religious power. Luke is signifying, signaling that God is doing something huge, but not in the usual way, right? The coming power is going to be a completely, radically different power, right? Then we hear from subversive people, two humble peasant women, one of which is the first, I don't know if you recognize, the very first to proclaim the Messiah. And then the other one, this crazy subversive message. I want to close with, with her palm here. 46 through 48, Mary said, My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. 
Now, I don't know if you guys recognize this, but if you were to get a Bible with linear notes, you would find that she is drawing from a minimum of about a dozen Old Testament passages. This short little poem of hers is just riddled with Old Testament imagery. She draws from Genesis, Job, Micah, the Psalms, both First and Second Samuel. I mean, she's just drawing. She knows her scripture. She's like a prophet, right? She's like a prophet in this song. She knows her scripture, and she's responding to God by rejoicing in God, which is, which is her act of love. She sees God as being faithful and ever-present to her. And from now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. Right? She gives thanks to God for being present, not just for her, but for the entire world. Right? Generations of miracles, one miracle after another. Again, maybe, maybe you've heard the phrase. Um, I, I remember hearing this as a kid, and it really, really bugged me. Um, religion is the opiate of the masses, right? Religion is that tool that governments use to keep you all in line, to make you behave, right? If you don't do good, then you're going to go to hell, right? The opiate of the masses keep you all satisfied and keep you all down. Um, but again, Stanley Jones writes at the Magnificat that this poem is the most revolutionary document in the world. William Barclay claims at least three different revolutions very quickly here. Verse 51, he has, re, he has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their innermost thought. This is a moral revolution. This is moral subversion, right? Christianity is the death of pride. Because when someone sets their life beside Christ, pride has to die, right? Because nobody can stand next to Christ. Christ enables a person to see themselves. It's the death blow of pride. Dear Santa, help my mommy and daddy to love each other again. This is the answer to that prayer. Verse 52, he's brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. This is a social revolution. This is social subversion. Christianity puts an end to all labels when we realize what Christ has done for all people everywhere, it's no longer possible to speak of this person and that person. Social grades are all gone. Dear Santa, please make the bully stop picking on me. That's the child's prayer. This is an answer to that prayer. And then finally in verse 53, he's filled the hungry with good things and he sent the rich away empty. This is economic subversion. This is economic revolution. A non-Christian society is, is an, a, it's a gathering, right? Society where we gather as much as we can for ours, for us. But a Christian society is a society where no one dares have too much when somebody else doesn't have enough. And it's different from the kingdoms of this world. This is the one, this is the answer to the dear Santa. Please make sure that everyone has something to eat this Christmas. And you know there's kids that are praying that prayer. See, people assume that the Messiah would overthrow the Romans using the same world-building, empire-building tactics that all the other empires had used before them, violence, suppression. But Mary's song tells us that the Messiah's his kingdom is going to be different. It's not going to be built on power, war, and money. It's going to be built on humility through an ordinary person. And the final line of her poem he has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised 
our ancestors. Just a quick word about that promise. It's not only the subversive manner by which Jesus came or the subversive people who announced him as much as it was the subversive nature of the promise itself that rocked the world. Again, the expectation the Messiah would overtly destroy the world over, knock over all the big buildings, knock over all the enemies, sink all the navies, and then start over. That, that wasn't the plan. That's not the plan. God knew that another worldly kingdom would just take its place because the root or the heart of the issue hadn't been dealt with. Something had to be supplanted. Something had to be replaced at its foundation, at its root level. The promise was to write God's law in our hearts, not in the law books, not in governments, not in kingdoms, not in dynasties of men. They will fail every time. Do not put your trust in them. Do not put your trust in the governments of men. They are instituted by God. They are incredibly helpful, but do not put your trust in them. They will not deliver the peace that they promise. They can't. They don't have the power. But we need to recognize that the only way to peace on earth is going to happen is by the power of subversive love. It's not, it's not silly and it's not childish to pray for world peace. I know, again, you watch Miss America. I want world peace. We need to stop laughing at that. We need, we, we need to embrace that. We need to be teaching our children to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, and believe that it will happen. I'm not sure if we do. But with the power of Christ in our lives and the power of his spirit in our lives daily, we can change the world. We can bring about peace on earth. And it's going to be coming through subversive love. So I just want to challenge us this morning. How can we be more subversive? Right? How can we sneak in the door? I mean, we can yell and scream at people or we can do just loving things. Bow your heads. Father, thank you for this message. Thank you for Luke and his way of writing. Thank you for the fact that you are not like the kingdoms of this world. Your kingdom is completely different. Father, and it's really hard to get used to it. So hard, especially during this last year, we are so drawn back to the kingdoms of this world. But, Father, you draw us to a better way, a more excellent way. So, Father, every morning, fill us with your spirit. Give us the power, the wherewithal to live the life that you created us to live. It's a life that you called good, and it's still attainable here and now because you redeem everything. Father, in all these things, we ask it in your son's name. Amen.